Let us pray. Gracious God, you call us to be stewards of many things. Our gifts, our time, our relationships, our treasure, the very faith you give to us as a gift, even you call us to be stewards of your word. So we ask you now to silence in us any voice but your own and speak your word into that silence that we might hear and respond and follow and be transformed. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, beginning at the 21st verse of the 18th chapter. Let us hear God's word. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, How often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what's in a title? To kill a mockingbird was simply Atticus, before Harper Lee decided that that title focused too narrowly on just the one character. Joseph Heller tried out Catch 11, but because the original Ocean's 11 was out at that same time, it was 
scrap to avoid confusion. Then Heller thought, catch 18. But Leon Uris' book called Mila 18 was out at the same time, so that made him switch titles again to avoid more confusion. But could we think of anything else but catch 22? What's in a title? Paul McCartney has said that the original working title for the Beatles' epic song Yesterday was Scrambled Eggs. Can you imagine it? Scrambled Eggs. All my hash browns seem so far away. Now my omelet wants to hide away. Oh, I should eat some scrambled eggs. You need to know how long I worked on that, by the way. But the point is the title, a holding place for syllables and notes until McCartney could work his beetle magic on the thing and voila, yesterday. Sermon titles can be elusive things. We produce our newsletter at least a month and sometimes more in advance of any given Sunday. And sometimes I'll choose a sermon title way back then and then weeks later when it comes time to actually writing the thing, the title will have absolutely zero to do with the sermon, which is not the end of the world, of course. I have a colleague whose sermon title today, for example, will be September 17, 2017. Or other churches simply say sermon in the bulletin and leave it all up to your imagination to entitle what they've heard. But that's not really the point either. The point is that I've wrestled, and I've wrestled a lot with this morning's title. It was first called The Stewardship of Grace, then The Stewardship of Mercy, then The Stewardship of Forgiveness, then The Stewardship of Acceptance, and now, finally, landing The Stewardship of Expectations. All of those secondary words, forgiveness, grace, acceptance, mercy, will come into play, but the, but the baseline is stewardship. It's a year of stewardship at Third Church, and though precise definitions won't be needed, it will be good for us a little bit, I think, together as a community to, to think about a working definition. Just last Sunday at Rally Day, Nancy Watson and Katie Orm and Greg Hamburger shared their perspectives eloquently. Some of their words included giving, sharing, abundance, growing, learning, doing, being, responsibility, all, stewardship. A, def a dictionary definition looks something like this acting as the surrogate of another or others, especially by managing property, financial affairs, an estate, or the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. Those are secular definitions. I want to suggest that they also work from a faith perspective acting as a surrogate manager for God, caring for and preserving the gifts of God. Stewardship becomes caring for, therefore, and preserving on God's behalf all that God gives us, all of it, the earth, 
relationships, our lives, our work, our time, our energies, our passions, our money, all of it. All of it. Sometimes we care for it by preserving it. And sometimes we care for it by investing it faithfully, nurturing its growth, and then giving it away like that magic penny. So that's a baseline. We are stewards, all of us. We are stewards of God's gifts. Stewardship needs a starting place. We need a why to the what and the how. The starting point cannot be all those things, all those gifts, our time and skill and money and everything else. Those are expressions of, manifestations of a deeper gift. Before we embrace and accept our calling as stewards, our inspiration must be established. Before we can care for something, we have to know what it is. Before we can give something away, we need to know what we have what we have, what we are called to be stewards of, has many descriptors. Mercy, grace, love, compassion, forgiveness. But its source is a relationship. A relationship we have with God that is primary and precedes every other word or action or response. We've heard a parable this morning from Matthew's Gospel. The presenting topic is a big one, forgiveness. Yet the deeper topic seems to be something like the nature of the relationship between God, who is the King, the Lord in this story, and God's people, the slaves, the workers. It's also a parable that shows the ongoing limitations of human thinking and the never-ending abundance of God's response, who God is, who we are, who we might become. Peter, our surrogate in the story, asks Jesus a question. If another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? I wonder about Jesus' response in this encounter. I wonder how Jesus looked. What nonverbal cues was he giving before he responded? Did he sigh? Did he shake his head? Peter, dude, Peter, seriously, Peter, have you not been paying attention at all? I wonder. Not seven times, but 77 times. Not seven times, Peter, will you forgive, but 77 times. And if you were reading along in Matthew's Gospel, you'll note a little footnote that says it could even be translated from the Greek to English 70 times, seven times. That's even better. Jesus then tells a story to make a point, to make this point. After an emotional plea, a king forgives his slave a significant debt. 
when that same forgiven slave encountered another slave who owed him a much smaller debt, he refused to forgive. So that's mercy shown to him, no mercy shown to another. And the king finds out and is outraged. And he punishes the first unforgiving slave. Clearly not a parable with a subtle, nuanced meaning, is it? And also clearly a parable with significant implications for how we live together. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. The heart of the matter. Think of all the implications in our understanding of the word. The Greek used here for forgiveness is many-faceted. Literally, it means to send away. But it also means letting go, dismissing, releasing, pardoning, delivering. Because what Jesus understands is that as long as one holds power over another, or as long as one is indebted to another, whether financially or relationally or spiritually, then the relationship is not mutual, it is not authentic in either direction. However we understand human indebtedness in this parable, what we learn is that God is not a debt-holding, grudge-bearing God. Of all the kinds of gods God could be, God is a forgiving God which means that we should be forgiving creatures. The Welsh priest and former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, just to keep our Welsh reference streak alive for another week, wrote this about forgiveness. One of the oddest things in our culture is that we seem to be tolerant of all sorts of behavior Yet we are deeply unforgiving. We shouldn't be misled by an easygoing atmosphere and manners and morals. Under the surface, there is a hardness that ought to worry us. And that means that when the church in its practice points us to the possibility of forgiveness, it is being pretty countercultural. So think about recent events. A young man killing five young girls in an Amish school in Pennsylvania. A young man killing nine people at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Or more particularly, or more locally, think about any time a partner in a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, commits an offense, a betrayal, an abuse against another, maybe even against you. Rowan Williams goes on. Forgiveness is not a form of sentimentality, an easy compassion that costs nothing. When a Christian is asked whether he or she would forgive, let's say, a terrorist bomber, the answer should not be, of course. For one thing, Williams says, it isn't for anyone to forgive someone who has injured another. 
And forgiveness can't just be mandated as something to be done once and for all and straight away. Certainly Christians are told to forgive each other, but they should know better than most how long a job it can be. They can say that it's possible, but God forbid that they should try to force the pace for someone whose hurts they don't know firsthand. Nor should forgiveness be confused with leniency or making light of an outrage. Then Williams says this, Forgiveness is the restoration of a relation. Humanly, with the victim of an offense, great or small, but also a relationship with God. To say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins is to claim not that offenses don't matter, nor that things can easily be made all right again, but simply that even the worst of our failures cannot shut a door for God. Failure and hurt can be reclaimed, not by us, but by God. And if it is possible for God, that makes it possible for us. And then Williams says what I think we all are thinking. A belief in the forgiveness of sins is a tough and difficult one. And yet it points more clearly than almost anything else to the glory and the liberty of God. God is a forgiving God. And we are called to be forgiving creatures. And of course the point is not a number. Though we tend to make it that way, faith is not about keeping score. Not only is God not a debt-holding, grudge-bearing God, God is not a score-keeping God. If God were a score-keeping God, the game would be over before we ever took the field. Seven, or 77, or 70 times seven is not a math problem, but an invitation to abundance. This is not skimpy forgiveness with a term limit or an expiration date, but abundant and never-ending forgiveness, unlimited. And infinite. So I titled the sermon the way I did because our human expectation is to keep score, is to hold on to grudges, to live in a state of unforgiveness with ourselves and with others. That was the point of Peter's question. How many times, as if forgiveness were a commodity, it's not. It's a gift. A free gift. God defies our expectations when God forgives us. It is unexpected, fully unexpected. And forgiven, we don't forgive to receive forgiveness. We forgive because we've been forgiven. A grateful response to God's graciousness. So if I were to retitle this sermon, rather than the stewardship of scrambled eggs or something like that, perhaps it would be the stewardship of forgiveness. But more fundamentally, it might be the stewardship of a relationship 
our primary, covenantal, unbreaking, unbreakable relationship with God who forgives us to infinity and beyond and who loves us always and no matter what and who frees us to do the same. Amen.